3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is Thursday, the 16th of November. Good morning, Spike. Good morning, mate. How are you going? I'm all right. Um, I, you mentioned this yeah. morning I sound, sound a bit croaky. Got but, the sexy voice. Um, I know, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, you know what? The the thing the thing that gets me to this voice is actually just a lot of yelling. So um, invite me to your rallies. I kind of <laughs> like how this sounds, but I know that um, I'm going to be a real pain in the ass if I scream at home just for the sake of having this voice. Um, but yeah, we've got an absolutely packed show on today. So maybe we'll just jump straight into the rundown. I might kick it off. So okay. uh, we're going to start by being joined by Bo Newham from NAPWA, which is the National Association of People with HIV. And Bo's joining us to discuss the recent launch of free nationwide HIV self-testing kits, which are available for home delivery. And it's an initiative in partnership with Queensland Positive People. So really excited to tell you a bit more about that. Um, we'll also be um, joined by Uncle Riyad Aladasi, uh, who's a Nam Melbourne-based Palestinian nurse who's currently on a hunger strike for seven days as of today at Webb Dock Drive in Port Melbourne. Riyad, who is leading the protests and camp at, uh, out at the dock, which successfully, success, successfully, I'll spit that out, prevented at least one Zim truck, which was transferring Israeli weapons on Wednesday the 8th of November. He's on hunger strike in solidarity with his people in Gaza. If my people don't eat, I will not eat until my demands are met or I die. Yeah, I mean, I think that is really a testament to um, to the dire situation that is uh, unfolding in Gaza and has been unfolding. And um, to follow that up, on Tuesday this week, I caught up with Ihab, who's a Palestinian activist who's been staging the sit intifada on the steps of Victorian Parliament, calling for justice for Palestine and an end to the genocide in Gaza. And as of today, Ihab has been conducting this peaceful protest for 32 days straight uh, to draw attention to policy and lawmakers to take every action they can to stop the genocide. Uh, and we'll be having a conversation with Palestine, Palestinian media artist, documentary filmmaker, writer and producer Rehab Karida, who joins us to discuss the recent publication of a statement of solidarity with Palestine, sorry, developed by rank and file members of the Media, Entertainment and Arts, Arts Alliance or MEAA, while the MEAA released its own official statement on, is- on the Israel and Palestinian Palestine crisis on November 6, rank and file members have united to call for a stronger action by the Union on Palestine, Palestine solidarity, including with regard to the protection of journalists and cultural workers. Um, and then after that, 
we're going to be joined by Scott Drummond, who is the program manager of uh, VADA, or the Victorian Alcohol and Drug Association, uh, which is the peak for Victorian AOD treatment, um, or the treatment sector. And Scott's going to be here to chat about the surge in fatal overdoses in Victoria during 2022, as detailed in data released by the Coroner's Court of Victoria. Um, so really important to listen to that interview and to re-up support for the Keep Our City Alive campaign, but we'll have all of those details when we speak with Scott. And also, uh, finally, we'll have a conversation um, with the Everybody's Home campaign, which is a national housing campaign that this week called for one in ten houses to be social housing over the na- next decade as a measure to end homelessness in Australia and, a, and, a, and has recommended the 10% target in, in its submission to the National Housing and Homelessness Plan, which is expected to be released next year. Uh, so we'll be joined by May Aziz, who is the spokesperson for Everybody's Home. Yeah, awesome. So... Packed show. Stay tuned. Um, we've got plenty to get through, and we can't wait to go through it with you. But for now, um, here's a bit of exciting community news. Hi, everyone. You're invited to the 2023 Beyond the Bars CD launch on Thursday, the 16th of November, at Arnie Thorpe's gathering place, Dadi Munwaro, High Street, Preston. Join MC Shirley Hood for an evening of talks and music, including Kutch Edwards, Amos Roach, Chris Austin and myself, Robbie Thorpe, and the band. Thursday, the 16th of November, Arnie Alma Thorpe's gathering place, Dadi Munwaro, from 6pm to 8.30pm. All welcome. See you there. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit wildlife emergency response service dedicated to helping wildlife in need across Victoria. Our volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned wildlife. If you see wildlife that may need our help, on the road, in your backyard or in the bush, please contact us immediately on 84007300. That's 84007300. To donate or to become a volunteer, visit wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. These are the news headlines for Thursday, the 16th of November. Yep. Um, okay, the Guardian reports that relentless cost of living pressure, rising interest rates, uncertainty about the direction of, of the economy and growing concern about inequality has undermined Australia's sense of social cohesion according to authoritative new research. The Social Cohesion Index provides a barometer of social well-being, measuring worth, participation, belonging, acceptance and rejection, social inclusion and justice. The measure declined by four points over the past 12 months, hitting the lowest result on record. Since November 2020, the peak of social cohesion, which was the, se- the peak of social cohesion during the COVID-19 pandemic, the index has plummeted 13 points. After a polarising voice referendum campaign and rising community tensions over the war in the Middle East, the latest mapping social cohesion report puts the Scanlon-Monash Index of Social Cohesion at its lowest ebb since the survey began 16 years ago. The Scanlon Foundation has funded the Mapping Social Cohesion Project since 2007 
and the 2023 snapshot released on Wednesday draws on a survey of more than 7,000 Australians, augmented by qualitative interviews with people who have migrated to Australia. The report says sustained financial pressure is the factor weighing heavily on social cohesion. The The research shows Australians are preoccupied principally with their stretched household budgets, housing affordability and the state of the economy. Almost 9 in 10 survey respondents are also worried about the risks of a severe downturn in the global economy. In July 2020, 73% of respondents were happy with the state of their finances. That's dropped to 61% in the latest research. Cost of living pressure is creating hardship, with 12% reporting skipping meals because there's not enough money for food, and 12% struggling to pay rent or mortgages, and 22% reporting insufficient home income to pay for prescription medications or health care. Also in headlines, early on Wednesday, Israeli settler forces announced a, quote, targeted operation, end quote, on Al-Shifa Hospital. Despite any substantiating evidence to justify their raid on Al-Shifa, Israeli forces claim that the medical complex stands above a Hamas command center. Human Rights Watch has stated it cannot corroborate these claims. The Dar al-Shifa, or House of Healing, located in the north of Gaza, housed between 600 and 900 beds and delivered specialist medical facilities that few other hospitals in the city could provide. Over the past week, medics have been struggling to support patients, including 39 babies, in their neonatal intensive care unit. Ongoing blackouts and lack of fuel to power generators means that electricity to incubators, which provide life-saving oxygen and warmth to premature babies, has been limited or cut off entirely. Since Saturday, at least 32 patients, including three babies, have died. Al-Shifa was the only remaining hospital in the region still capable of caring for patients. Currently, there are between 600 and 650 inpatients, 200 to 500 health workers, and approximately 1,500 displaced people taking shelter in the medical complex. In a statement released on Monday, Doctors Without Borders staff inside Al-Shifa Hospital say, quote, We don't have electricity. There's no water in the hospital. There's no food. People will die in a few hours without functioning ventilators, end quote. The statement continues describing snipers striking patients and bombing around the hospital, killing people attempting to flee. Doctors Without Borders staff plead, uh, pled for guarantee of a safe corridor to evacuate patients before healthcare workers. After five weeks of relentless, relentless Israeli settler assaults on Palestine, global calls for a humanitarian ceasefire continue. And in other news, a group of Tiwi traditional owners have secured an injunction on Santos' planned construction of the Barossa gas export pipeline until mid-January 2024. The initial emergency injunction, handed down in a federal court ruling on just an hour before construction was set to commence on November 2, was yesterday extended until mid-January, resulting in the extended stay of works while Tiwi traditional owners case against the pipeline's construction is underway. The state of works is restricted to the southern portion of the pipeline, which is situated, which is planned to run within seven kilometres of the islands. However, construction has been allowed to resume on the northern portion of the pipeline, which is situated further offshore. Jikilaruwu man, Simon Mankara, brought civil enforcement proceedings in October 2023, pushing for a court injunction to prevent construction of the pipeline. Mr Mankara argues that the pipeline threatens a new new impact or risk to the underwater cultural heritage of Tiwi peoples and that this threat was not assessed as part of the approval, 
the approved initial environment plan lodged for the pipeline. In a media release issued yesterday, Environmental Defenders Office Special Counsel Alina Lakin said the Federal Court has already established that Santos needs to do proper consultation with traditional owners before a valid approval for work can be issued. Lakin emphasised that this case is about ensuring that companies properly assess evidence of new impacts and risks caused by their project when it comes to light in accordance with the law. Responding to the news, Senior Elder Molly Mankara said, I was calling out to ancestors all this week, asking to protect our waterways, marine life, sea country. I asked for them to stop Santos and they listened. And finally, in news headlines, a new report released on Wednesday the 8th of November by the Coroner's Court of Victoria shows a surge in fatal overdoses in Victoria, with 549 Victorians losing their lives to a fatal overdose in 2022 the highest since at least 2009, but likely the highest on record for this state. Heroin-related fatal overdoses were the highest in 23 years, with the city of Melbourne having the highest number of heroin-related fatal overdoses, 24, which is over two people every month in 2022 in the city of Melbourne alone. Alcohol-related fatal overdose is also the highest since at least 2009 in Victoria, and fatal overdoses involving synthetic drugs were 46 people in 2022, up from two in 2018, an increase of 2,000% in five years. These fatalities are preventable with evidence-informed policy measures such as drug checking, decriminalizing public intoxication, and overdose prevention services, which are capable of curbing these harms. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 16th of November, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Rising Tide invites you to join the People's Blockade of the world's largest coal port from November 24 to 27 at Mullabimba, Newcastle. One percent of global emissions are from coal shipped through the port. We are in a climate crisis. It can't continue. Thousands of people will gather to demand no new coal and an end to coal exports by 2030 and alternative secure jobs for coal workers. Get on the water or chill out on the beach with live music and more. Register your interest at risingtide.org.au forward slash blockade and we'll get in touch with you. Rising Tide is a 3CR supporter. Change has to come. Change has to come. back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Um, And we are now joined by Bo Newham from NAPWA, the National Association of People with HIV, who joins us to discuss the recent launch of free nationwide HIV self-testing kits available for home delivery, an initiative in partnership with Queensland Positive People. Bo is the project lead of the National HIV Self-Testing Project at NAPWA. You can find out more about HIV self-testing and order a kit by heading to self.hivtest.au. Good morning, Bo. Good morning. 
thanks so much for joining us this morning. Um, so I thought maybe we could um, begin by jumping into the importance of, um, I guess, discussing and amplifying um, the needs of people living with HIV in Australia and the importance of community-led change in striving for health equity. So could you speak a bit to the role that this grassroots action and community-led action has had in driving better outcomes for people living with HIV as well as people at risk of acquiring HIV in Australia and how NAPWA's work fits into this? Yeah, of course. I, I think it's really, you know, it's really hard to undersell the impact of grassroots activism has had on the HIV response in Australia. Like Australia is seen as having one of the best HIV responses in the world, um, and a lot of that began with the third Australian National Conference on AIDS, which was in Tasmania in 1988, where people living with HIV stormed the stage and kind of stood up publicly for the first time, saying, we are the ones living with the virus. Like, we need to be spoken to um, on these issues, not just spoken about. And I think that really set the tone for the next, um, you know, uh, almost two decades, uh, sorry, more than two decades of, of work where government, um, health and the community have all been kind of working together on kind of meeting the needs of people with HIV and people at most, most at risk of acquiring HIV. Mm. Um, so NAPA itself is a body which is made up of state or territory-based bodies of people living with HIV. And we we try to step forward and ensure that um, both the, the needs of people who have been living with HIV long-term, um, in Australia now more than 50% of people with HIV are aged over 50, um, but also new people who are newly acquiring or people who are migrating to Australia with HIV. Um, it's so, you know, it's more important than ever as HIV diversifies in our community that kind of it's we're going to the people living with HIV to kind of really lead and kind of decide what the main focus is going to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you um, raising that um the, the sort of demographic change that's occurring as well with, um, you know, migrants that um, are living with HIV and, and and the need to sort of be attuned to how to best meet their needs um, as they enter the community. Um, so I guess coming to uh, the, the centrality of person-centered care in, in this approach, I know that in 2022, the Australasian Society for HIV, um, Viral Hepatitis and Sexual Health Medicine, or ASHM, and NAPWA jointly convened a roundtable of experts to forge a consensus on the significance of person-centered care for people living with HIV and people at risk of acquiring HIV. So a key statement that came out of that roundtable was issued in late June this year, and I was hoping you could tell us about the core principles of person-centered care and how they factor into the push for HIV self-testing nationwide. So the push for person-centered care, um, so NAPO has largely come out of an increased focus on the quality of life for people living with HIV, um, but it's a kind of perspective on health that I feel like everyone can benefit from, not just people living with HIV. And what it does, it really tries to reshape the the relationship people have with their medical, um, like medical services, their doctors, but like the full branch of their engagement with the medical um, medical industry. So our core principle of it is respecting a person's autonomy, 
um, their dignity, their rights, um, and respecting a person's decisions about their own health care and the, the impact of their, their experiences on those decisions. Um, the, uh, and this is a key part for me, I think, um, supporting a person's ability to lead the dialogue about their own health. Um, and lastly, it's trying to build a relationship between people and healthcare professionals um, that's grounded in understanding and trust. Um, obviously, these are very big ideals, and you know, with the um, healthcare system how it is on the moment, there is a lot of pressures on, especially general practitioners or GPs, to um, that's really impacting their ability to kind of implement. Um, this type of care with all of their patients. Um, but, yeah, I think if we're going to see the best outcomes for people, um, this is the kind of approach that, you know, we really need to be centering at the, every point of our relationship with the healthcare system. Of course, um, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate you bringing that structural view into it as well and, and looking at how those downward pressures um, on on health professionals and on the health system um, can, you know, detract from a person-centered care approach, um, but also that there needs to be that bottom-up work uh, within training and education within the healthcare system to make sure that they are centering um, the individual that they're working with um, rather than treating them as a, you know, you know pathologizing individuals uh, on the basis of their diagnosis. Um, so how does the HIV self-testing delivery service work and how do people access it? And, you know, coming back to that question about person-centered care, how does self-testing differ from um, the current standard procedure for HIV testing? So HIV self-testing in Australia has been available for a number of years um, when the first HIV self-testing product, um, the Atoma HIV self-test, was approved um, for sale in Australia. So the Atomo self-test kit has, is available in commercially in pharmacies in Australia, so people can just go out and buy it if they would wish. Um, our service, um, hivtest.au, essentially would al- allows anyone to go online, um, fill out a very short order form. Like We have a very low-barriers approach to ordering an HIV self-test kit. Um, So all you need to do is put in your name, your address, um, confirm that you're over 18, and we'll send out um, two HIV self-test kits to you. Um, And we can send to anywhere that Australia Post covers. Um, Other than our service and the Otomo test kit, um, all other services in Australia require um, it to be either a face-to-face service or a service where you have to send in a sample um, through the mail and then receive your results through either a phone call or an SMS. Um, for us, uh, HIV self-testing has been is really important because we know from the epidemiological data that there ha- is a number of people in Australia that are living with HIV that aren't aware of their diagnosis. tends to sit um, at around 10% of the HIV positive population and we really know that we need to diversify the the different ways in which people can have an HIV test to kind of fit into what their needs are rather than expecting them to come to the services that um, we currently have on offer. 
Um, already we've seen a really big uptake of the HIV self-testing kit from all around Australia. Um, and I think it's just been really important, especially for people that um, may struggle to have a clinic near them that they're comfortable in talking about HIV with, or they just may not have a clinic near them in general. Um, but also we've also seen, um, I will take for example, uh, women who get diagnosed with HIV are really overrepresented in late diagnosis. So that means they've had HIV for some time before they get diagnosed. Um, and we've spoken to some of those women, and a lot of them have said that they were almost talked out of having an HIV test um, by health professionals who thought they weren't at high enough risk in or- order to satisfy kind of the need for an HIV test. So this kind of, if people are experiencing a sort of gatekeeping of testing, HIV self-testing allows them to kind of sidestep that a bit and just go directly to the test if they feel like it is best for them. Yeah. And I think, you know, having that that element of privacy and self-determination over the way that you engage in, um, you know, in testing is really important. But I also understand that, you know, um, being outside of a clinical setting means that people might not necessarily know how to access support to navigate their results. So I know that uh, the website has information about this. Um, could you let us know about where people can access support to navigate the test results once they come through and, you know, whether there's anything else you'd like to share um, as we wrap up? Yeah, of course. So when you receive the test kit, you receive um, a kind of an info pack that kind of runs you through the possible outcomes of the HIV self-testing kit um, and where to best access services. In Australia, we're very lucky in that there's a, um, some incredible services at the state level, but also national hotlines that can respond to people um, 24-7. Um, so they're all listed. Uh, other than that, um, yeah, there's such a... We really tried to make the website kind of as focused as possible and really give people the top-line messages. I think, you know, the most important message for everyone um, in Australia right now is that HIV is no longer a death sentence. It is a manageable condition... Um, if people are on treatment, they can get to a point where they can no longer um, transmit the virus sexually and that the kind of the expectation of how long you would live would, is exactly the same if you're on treatment than if you, if you weren't. And I think there's those core messages really bringing people to a point where HIV isn't that kind of terrifying um, specter that is holding over from the 1980s, 1990s, um, can really help people kind of contextualize HIV to 2023 mm. and just focus in on the fact that knowing your status is the best possible thing you can do for your health, whether that's positive or negative. It's not knowing that is really um, putting your health in danger. Yeah, I think um, emphasizing knowing your status is so important because really what we're talking about is, um, you know, for people that do live with HIV, it's the management of a chronic health issue like so many other chronic health issues. Um, and by being informed about these things and, you know, normalizing treatment, normalizing self-testing, normalizing knowing your status, I think this is um, some excellent work that NAPWA and so many other community-led organizations have been doing to break down stigma in the broader community and to make sure that people that are living with HIV or at risk of acquiring HIV, um, you know, 
understand that they're supported and that, you know, their their situation is understood within context and they're treated with dignity. So thank you very much, Bo, for um, joining us today. Oh, thank you so much. Have a great morning. You too. And that was Bo Newham from NAPWA, the National Association of People with HIV, who joined us to discuss the recent launch of a free nationwide um, HIV self-testing kits, which are available for home delivery. And this free uh, delivery initiative is in partnership with Queensland Positive People. Bo is the project lead of the National HIV Self-Testing Project at NAPWA. And you can find out more about HIV self-testing and order a kit by heading to self.hivtest.au. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.29 in the morning. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. This is Jahan Khonlu from Salam Radio. Tune in 4 to 6 p.m. every Sunday on 3CR for a wide selection of modern music from the greater Middle East and beyond. We feature guests both locally and internationally based to help bring new sounds to you. For more information, please follow our Instagram at Salam Radio Show. So tune on in. Henneplate? Panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope... Only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. And we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And Inez, take it away. Thank you so much. Um, so we were going to speak to Uncle Riyad Aladasi, who is in, who's a Nam 
Melbourne-based Palestinian nurse who is currently on hunger strike for seven days as of today at Web Dock Drive, who was leading the protests and the camp out at the dock, which successfully prevented at least one Zim truck, which was transferring Israeli weapons on Wednesday, 8th of November, and is currently on hunger strike in solidarity with his people in Gaza. If my people don't eat, I will not eat until my demands are met or I die. And given the fact that he is on hunger strike, um, has said that there is a media statement that I can read in place of the interview. So apologies for that. But this is what I will read. And this is the media um, release for the WebDoc ongoing protest and hunger strike Wednesday the 15th of November. On Wednesday the 8th of November, 500 pro-Palestinian activists blockaded the web dock in Port Melbourne for 12 hours. They successfully prevented at least one Zim truck, which was an Israeli national shipping carrier involved in the facilitation of weapons transfer. And it stopped it from entering the dock to move forward with its shipment. The next day, uh, the Melbourne Palestinian nurse, Riyad Aladasi, Returning to the dock alongside 40 pro-Palestinian activists with tents, sleeping bags, supplies and protest signs, they began an ongoing sit-in, sleep-in at the dock to ensure no more weapons are shipped from Australia to Israel to kill Palestinians in the occupied Gaza Strip and elsewhere in occupied Palestine. On the same day, Al-Adasi embarked on a hunger strike, vowing not to eat until the people of Gaza eat. As the death toll from Israel attacks in the tiny enclave climbs above 11,000 Palestinian people in the fifth week of the onslaught, which has targeted hospitals, ambulances, schools, residential buildings, refugee camps and places of worship. The hunger strike is also in response to Israel cutting off food, cutting off water, cutting off electricity and fuel with intermittent disenablement of internet and telecommunication services to the siege Gaza Strip. Today marks the seventh day of Al Adasi's hunger strike with no food, just water for sustenance, as he camps out at the dock with increasing numbers at the protest site, reaching more than 100 pro Palestinian activists. Al Adasi will escalate to a full hunger strike until his demands are met or he dies, stating, If my people don't eat, I will not eat, save Gaza first. And I and many of the protesters here with me have family members who have been directly and brutally impacted by this genocide. It is completely unacceptable that our Australian tax dollars are used to support what is becoming the most intensive genocides of our collective times. The UN Special Rapporteur on Occupied Palestine Territories only this week argued that Israel does not have the right to self-defense underneath international law, because the threat to Israel is stemming from a militant group within an occupied territory, not another state. Now, Aladasi wants the Australian government to publicly set the record straight to stop perpetuating the lethal falsehood of Israel's right to defend itself with impunity and immediately hold Israel to account for its gross violations of international law. Also, he urges the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, to mobilise to cut all financial and domestic ties with Israel and recognise the Palestinian right to self-defence as per the International Law, Additional Protocol I to the Geneva Convention 
of 1949, UNGA Resolution 37-43. Aladasi has stated he will remain on the protest grounds and continue his hunger strike, and the protesters vowed to occupy the port until their demands are met. These are their demands. Number one, ceasefire now in Palestine. Two, end the occupation in Palestine. Three, allow food, water, aid, fuel, electricity, internet connection and all communications into Gaza. Four, Australia must terminate all contracts with Israeli weapons companies and guarantee that it will end its military relationship with Israel. No more military surveillance, supplies and weaponry trade between the two governments. He has made it clear that this protest is not organised by any other particular group or organisation. When asked who is at the protest, he responds, we are the people of this nation. We ask that all concerned members of the Australian public support Palestine in this crucial time. And for all media inquiries, please contact Riyadh. Adelsari, which we, we can put in the show notes as well. Thanks for that, Inez. Um, and I think uh, maybe it'll be a good time as well to go to another uh, action that has been ongoing um, also regarding the siege, the genocidal siege on Gaza and uh I think this has been one that has also been pretty visible. People would have seen it going through the city. Uh, this is the Sit Intifada, which I think is a great tongue-in-cheek name for um, the the peaceful protests that uh, Ihab is holding um, at the steps of Victorian Parliament. And he's a Palestinian activist who has basically staged a sit-in calling for justice for Palestine and an end to genocide in Gaza. And as of today, Ihab has been conducting this peaceful protest for 32 days straight. And so I'm going to play um, a quick clip of a conversation that I had with him uh, earlier this week on Tuesday, where I went and sat with him for a while and learned a bit about what this protest is asking for. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And right now I'm out live with Ihab on the steps of Parliament House, where he has been holding the sit intifada for how many days? 30 days now. 30 days. Um, as of uh, this moment where we're recording, it'll be 32 by the time that you hear this. And... Um, I guess I want to start off by asking you, Ihab, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what led to this decision to start this peaceful protest? I am an order, ordinary human being, born from a refugee mom's kicked out of her land when she's eight years old, and her father has to go out of West Bank and uh, born in a refugee camps, lived a very rough life life in in 26 years of my life uh, had to work from young age of eight years old and study at the same time then i'm proud to be in australia and working uh, hard working australians have uh, business and running and contribute to the life in australia that's basically who i am yeah and i mean you know 30, 30 days ago, you uh, decided to sit here uh, after the horrific retaliation and the genocide that's been perpetrated against Palestinians in Gaza. Now we're seeing more and more in the West Bank, um, you know, militarized settlers crack down on Palestinians. Um, this is obviously a continuation of 
you know, 75 years of genocidal violence, you know, even longer since the Balfour Declaration of 1917. So what made you want to uh, sit here and start this protest and what's kept you going? In the beginning of the 7th of October, I was overseas. The day I arrived here back home, I decided what could we do to stop the genocide and killing the innocent people down there. I talked to a lot of friends, if anything we can do, I found that a negative response as we have nothing to do. I could not go in my daily life as usual, looking after my children and, and go to work and eat and sleep. Uh, with a lot of thoughts in my mind that decided to stop stand in front of the parliament, maybe we send the message first to the political systems in the state and in the Australia wide. Then I might be have some kind of message delivered to the general public uh, walking bus. And this is the two uh, main messages. And bare minimum, if I could not deliver any messages, at least I, find I maintain my own dignity, my own self-respect as a human. Uh, do not uh, accept what's happening and protect my own self from uh, normalizing, killing women, children and innocent people. Absolutely, because I think especially, um, you know, the news cycle can be so sensationalist and uh, things fall out of the news cycle. Obviously, saying that makes it sound passive, but obviously people are choosing not to report on Palestinians being killed. But I appreciate what you're saying about not wanting to normalize this, never wanting to normalize the killing of Palestinian people, which has been going on for so long. Now, what are you hoping that the general public will do in terms of supporting you here? I believe 100% the whole general public, it's what's made the political system. These politicians, they're supposed to serve us, they're supposed to present the general public. If we deliver the right message to the general public, we can put enough pressure into the system, the public system, and we make sure they can do what we want. At the moment, unfortunately, we've been uh, misled by our politicians, the one-sided, and our media. And the only way to do it, to disturb that system, to get in their own space and tell them, we the main power, and we can do, we can change you. And if we united with each other, we can deliver this message very easy. you there because of us, not we are here because of you. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, you know, what I've heard from people that have been coming here and sitting with you is so much of this is just sitting down and having conversations person to person to learn about what's happening and to learn together. Um, do you have any messages for listeners who are hearing this on Thursday morning about what they should do um, and how to take action? Definitely. The message is each and every one of us has plenty of power inside. Do not underestimate yourself. Do your bit don't wait for others. If every one of us do their bit, definitely the change will come and the power will come outside. i give you a small story happened today. Six kids came with their teacher to the parliament as audience. They had in their mind to deliver a message to the parliament because the parliament was sitting. When they are sitting down, when they are sitting down there, they actually uh, took their own pamphlets and, and put them down and, and put their message to the parliamentarians immediately. That caused so much chaos. All the parliaments has to be emptied. Ten policemen have to come 
and all this, uh, the uh, security of the parliament has to come and the only six kids under 16 peacefully deliver a message about their their message was about environmental nothing else more than environmental they disturb the whole system peacefully and they deliver a great message and the whole system went to chaos and if they even they done it peacefully imagine six kids can do that what you can do in yourself with your neighbors with your community with everybody stand up by themselves together and each one do he or she do their bit definitely i mean i think that is an incredible message everybody has a part to play you're here from 9 a.m to 9 p.m every day is that right monday to friday usually seven not nine they advertise at nine but usually i come here seven or even earlier than seven we stay until nine ten every single day Okay, well, I encourage everybody to get down. Is there anything else that you want to say to wrap up? I would love everyone to work at their own space. Please, I beg and, and ask everyone to do their parts and do not wait for others. Join us here. Share with us your ideas, your belief, and let us learn from you. And if anything, we can pass to you. We would love to pass to you. And these tips, I would love to say, it is a great place to show everybody we all from different colors, different race, different ideologies, different religion, different belief, we can manage and melt with each other with no difference whatsoever. And that was um, an excellent call to action and reminder from Ihab, who's a Palestinian activist who's been staging the sit intifada on the steps of Victorian, Victorian Parliament, sorry, calling for justice for Palestine and an end to the genocide in Gaza. And again, as of today, Ihab has been conducting this peaceful prote- protest for 32 days straight. Um, and he's going to be there uh, from, as he said, 7 a.m. to about 9, 10 o'clock at night. Every single day, please go join in, go sit with him, um, figure out what you can do, learn, talk. This is so important. Like the the way that he's communicating to people and bringing people in is incredibly generous. Go buy him a coffee. Go have a chat with him. I really, really encourage it. Um, uh, yeah, I was just um, listening um, to rehab. Um, Ihab. Ihab, sorry. Um, I guess... One of the things that really stood out to me is the lack of voices of Palestinian voices on the commercial media. And and so by doing that, they're sort of rendering a whole community silent. We're always hearing from the other side, the family members of the other side. Um, And I I think that just goes to how important community radio is, is to making sure that everyone, each side um, has a voice in this. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, on that, I'm going to jump into our next interview for today. So, um, Palestinian media artist, documentary filmmaker, writer, and producer Rehab Sharida joins us to discuss the recent publication of a statement of solidarity with Palestine developed by rank-and-file members of the Media, Entertainment, and Arts Alliance, or MEAA. Now, while the MEAA released its own official statement on the, quote, Israel and Palestine crisis, end quote, on November 6th, Rank-and-file members have united to call for stronger action by their union on Palestine solidarity, including with regard to the protection of journalists and cultural workers, implementation of boycott, divestment and sanctions measures against Israel, and mobilization of members in support of Palestine. 
Now, the statement is published in Overland, and it's still open to signatures from MEAA members wishing to express solidarity with Palestine. So we'll have links to that in our show notes. But for now, good morning, Rehab. Good morning. Thanks so much for making the time to, to come on today. Yeah, no, thanks for making the time. No, of course. Um, so I thought maybe we could start off by hearing a little bit about you and um, and about the work that you do and how you came to this statement, the MEAA for Palestine statement, as a Palestinian filmmaker that's partially based in so-called Australia. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I've been working for the last number of years on a film project at creative uh feature-length creative documentary about my father's village, my village, my ancestral village. Um, it just in a nutshell, I, just to describe um, briefly what my film's about, it, it basically looks at the history of my village, which has been erased, by the way, completely uh, decimated in 1948 during the creation of Israel. And in many ways, my film is about erasure. So it's not just the village that was you know, erased from the ground and the people expelled at gunpoint, there was also a massacre of over 100 boys and men uh, in my village. So most of my father's, you know, my family tree's kind of been erased from my father's side. Most of his male cousins and uncles, etc., were killed in that massacre. The survivors, including my father and his family, uh, went uh, by foot to Lebanon, which was the nearest um, country, and have been living in refugee camps ever since. My father came out here in 1971, hence... I was born and raised here, but most of my village communities still live in these refugee camps. And uh, till, until today, seven out of ten Palestinians are forcibly like living. We're not. We're not basically allowed to return. Israel will not allow us mm. to return. Militarily denies that right, which is recognised in international law. So, in, in many ways, I feel like. Uh, and and sorry, the one last thing I will say about that film is that. You know, when you're doing a historical piece, you often refer to the archive, you use archival images. I learned in the early stages of research on my film that, you know, when Israel invaded um, Beirut in 1982, they stole the entire national, Palestinian national film and image archives. So even our visual history, we don't even have access to that. Um, and so, it's, you know, so, so I, I, I got to learn in the very early stages of the research that this is a story about erasure on every single level. And I think what we're seeing today is, um, you know, a culmination of years, decades, uh, if you like, of, of Western media erasing the Palestinian story and erasing the Palestinian narrative to the point that, you know, um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's most, it's been most extreme in the recent weeks, you know, the, the Western media's position. But it's been quite shocking to see, even for those of us who are used to, I mean, I grew up in Australia, so when I was growing up in Australian media, the word Palestinian was synonymous with the word terrorist. You never read the word Palestinian on its own, you know. So it was quite bad when we were growing up. It got better, but now it seems to have come back even worse. Yeah. You know, zero historical context, um, and it, it, it's really quite shocking to see. So that's why I've come and added my name to this statement by the MEAA members of Palestine, um, because it, it outlines you know, the problems with uh, the media representation in Australia about this uh, and brings the important issues to the fore. Yeah, and, I mean, when you spoke about the documentary uh, that you're working on and that, you know, that that extreme example of the the kind of entire capture of um, the archive of Palestinian history by Israel... um, 
it it is just such a you know it, it really feels like we're on a spectrum of 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 that you know with that being the the most extreme kind of erasure and capture of that but looking at the way that silencing plays out um that censorship plays out in our in our media i think a lot of people are getting a crash course in the fact that you know censorship is not just something that um you know that happened uh, like under mccarthyism or something in the mm-hmm. states but it's actually an active process that's happening now so um it is yeah, I was wondering if you could speak about sort of how this um, this censorship and, and you know, mis-messaging around um, Palestine uh, contrasts against with, uh, sorry, contrasts against what you see as kind of the ethical imperatives of journalism in this time. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think that uh, it's, you know, it, it seems as though uh, journalistic integrity has gone out the window. I mean, what we're seeing in terms of regurgitation of, you know, Israeli government lines. And we know in the past there's been so many investigative stories that have kind of followed, um, you know, Israel's claims and found them to be untrue. So, for example, um, was it 2006 when the four kids on the beach were killed? You know, it blamed a a Hamas Mm. mine that was placed in the beach, which is absurd uh, as an idea. But then it was found out that that was utterly untrue. And so now we've kind of seen these lies about Hamas using hospitals as bases, etc. And these are just wholly, you know, regurgitated and repeated. Um, without question, you know, the ABC panel a few nights ago mm. was just another example of the racism that I'm talking about, of the silencing of Palestinian voices, the silencing of the Palestinian narrative, of giving so much more airtime to the Israeli narrative, to have three panellists representing the Israeli narrative and only one representing the Palestinian narrative. I mean, this is just, you know, another example of how, you know, how much the Palestinian story has been silenced, Um, you know, and and, and the media kind of portrays this issue as having started in October, on October the 7th, Mm. instead of framing it as a 100-year settler colonial, like, as, as as a... you know, Palestinians have been suffering from a hundred years of settler colonial violence. The mm-hmm. example I gave about my village, my people, my village community was we were forced off our village at gunpoint. Four hundred and eighteen villagers experienced the same fate when Israel was created. So from the very beginning, I say this because it's important. A lot of people are learning about Palestine for the first time because the situation is so extreme on the ground now. But this can't be seen. This aggression can't be seen as an isolated incident or an isolated thing. It basically it's part of, you know, you ask any Palestinian and we can tell you this has been going on different in different forms and in different ways for one hundred years. For one hundred years we've been experiencing settler colonial violence in the form of dispossession, incarceration, murder. This has been every Israeli policy has been aimed at reducing the number of Palestinians and stealing as much Palestinian land as possible. And all of the forms in which it tries to do that are forms of genocide. So the genocide isn't new. The attacks on Palestinian land and life are not new. Um, But what we're experiencing in Gaza today is, I don't know if I can find words. I I could say it's horrific. Mm. Um, I could say it's devastating, catastrophic. But I don't think those words encapsulate what we're witnessing, the kind of genocide um, and the violence. And, and, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's beyond comprehension, even for those of us who are, you know, who have been affected by this um, for decades, it's still quite shocking to see this kind of level of violence um, that's happening in Gaza right now.
Yeah, I, I mean, describing it as beyond comprehension, I think is is pretty apt. And and yet, you know, the the, the ethical imperative here is that we, um, especially for you know, speaking as a non-Palestinian media maker, the ethical imperative is to make sure that we continue attending to it and reminding people that this is going on. And so, uh, you know. The, the MEA for Palestine statement really raised those concerns and, uh, yeah. you know, demanded more of both the MEAA and also just more in general in terms of speaking up in solidarity with Palestine and the importance of continuing to profile this issue. So um, mm-hmm. could you uh, let us know, just in view of wrapping up, have there been responses to or like a, a reception of the statement from MEAA um, and more broadly? And, and what are you hoping that it's going to achieve going forward? Um, well, I think it's very, the statement's very important because as media workers, you know, it's about saying that, you know, calling on media workers to kind of take their responsibility seriously, um, that, you know, contributing to the public discourse in ways that kind of uh, interrogate issues um, and not just kind of repeat uh, what, you know, what Israeli army spokespeople are saying, for example. So there's kind of standards that people working in the media should be held to. And this this report I think we put out is is a kind of a reminder of that. It's about saying as media workers uh, and and artists. But the kind of response we've been getting is great. I mean, I think it's only been out for about a week. Um, I've lost track of all time, so mm-hmm. it might be less or more than that. But we've already got about, you know, 450 signatures. So these are members... Of MEAA, so these are people who work in the media, in the arts, in entertainment, that are adding their name. That list is growing, uh, so the response has been very good. I think it's going to grow even more, um, and I think people are fed up because what they're, they're, they're kind of seeing the media lies, they're hearing the media lie, that the, the media repeat the lies of the Israeli government, and they're also seeing on their screens, in their phones, on the, in their Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and. Uh, you know, TikTok feeds, they're seeing, you know, in real time what's going on in the, on the ground. So the time, you know, of being able to kind of put these lies out is over. I think people around the world, we've seen a mobilisation globally that we've never, ever witnessed before. People mm-hmm. in the smallest of towns, in the smallest of groups, grandmothers knitting, jumpers, all kinds of mobilisation activity that we've never, ever seen before. And I think that is a sign of people being fed up by... You know, the, the media putting out these lies and then seeing the reality on the ground with their own eyes. I mean, people can, you know, make their own conclusions about what's happening. Genocide yeah. looks like genocide, <laughs> you know. So it's, it's. I think that the, the, the number of people that have signed the letter, the, 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 the numbers of people who are active all over the world and mobilizing all over the world is a sign of this growing disconnect, if you like, mm. between the kind of media establishment and the political establishment in the West and the street, which is saying we are not going to be silent. We are not going to be silent during this during this genocide and we will not support it. Absolutely. And I think that's a, I think that's a positive thing, you know, in, in, in light of what's happening. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, it really comes back around to really saying to to establishment mainstream media like give people some credit like they they know they know what they're seeing um and they know what they want um reported on and 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 investigated in this um you know we're we're seeing this genocide happen i mean this as you mentioned the genocide has been going on for a very very long time but we see this um you know 
intensification at this moment. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people aren't dupes. They want to they want to know what's going on. And um, there is, you know, increasing solidarity with Palestine um, as um, folks have been able to access their own sources, do their own research about this. But I look forward to keep this co- keeping this conversation going about um, the Australian media's uh, complicity in silencing Palestine. But for now, Rehab, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, take care. Thanks. Bye bye. Have you heard it on the news about this fascist group thing? Evil men with racist views. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And you just heard a conversation that I had with Palestinian media artist, documentary filmmaker, writer and producer Rehab Sharida about the recent publication of a statement of solidarity with Palestine by rank and file members of the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance. And now we will hear from Scott Drummond, who is program manager at the Victorian Alcohol and Drug Association, peak for the Victorian AOD treatment sector, and is here to chat about the surge in fatal overdoses across the board in Victoria during 2022, as detailed in the data released by the coroner's court. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Scott. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. No, of course. Welcome back. Um, Scott, these numbers are truly gut-wrenching, uh, heroin-related fatal overdoses being the highest since 2000, 23 years, with the city of Melbourne having the highest number, which is 24 people in 2022, which is almost two people who die every month of an easily preventable death just in the CBD alone. Could you tell us more about the data released by the coroner's court in Victoria and why we're seeing the highest number since 2000? Sure. Well, you, you raised some interesting questions and, and we can have a bit of a think and a bit of a chat about those and, and, and look into those. So you're right. Now, the heroin overdose deaths have doubled uh, and the total overdose death numbers in 2022 was 549. And just by way of comparison, the 2022 road toll death was 210. So it gives you an indication of the severity and the significance of these data. Yeah. Now, the coroner's court investigates all deaths from suspected non-natural causes, including overdoses. And 
What they try and do is uh, look at those, understand those deaths and make a series of recommendations. But your question around why the numbers have increased is interesting and it's difficult to pinpoint a specific driver, I guess, but we could make some general comments. So we know from the data that overdose deaths reduced during the pandemic. They dropped slightly, but overall and over the last 10 years, they've increased. And post-pandemic, they've spiked and we're seeing the greatest number uh, in 10 years. So it's in likelihood due to uh, an increased supply post-pandemic. There's more uh, drugs, uh, heroin in particular, available. It could also be due to an increased purity of uh, drugs. So we know that when people are using drugs, if they are unfamiliar with the content and there's an increase in purity, it's likely to increase the risk of overdose. And we also know that an increased use of heroin uh, in Melbourne and in the CBD has been reported through wastewater data analysis. So there's a few things that we can put together there that, that tell us that say, with an increased supply, potential increase in purity and an increase in use, in fact, of heroin in particular uh, that, that are contributing to these overdose deaths. But as you point out, the overdose deaths are not just illicit drugs. There are a range of other things that uh, are involved here, and we can have a think about that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. I mean, we're also seeing alcohol-related fatal overdoses mm. is the highest, at least since 2009 in Victoria, Fatal overdoses where synthetic substances were a contributing factor are up 2,000% in five years, from two deaths in only 2018, which is not that long ago, to 46 in 2022. And fatal overdoses involving you know, alcohol and illegal drugs are the highest since at least 2009. We're seeing an increase in preventable, preventable deaths across the board. What are we missing here to ensure people get the support they need? So I'll touch on the synthetics first, is that you make a good point there, um, an extraordinary increase in overdose deaths where synthetic drugs have contributed. Uh, we've seen just a huge spike over the last decade or so in the number of synthetic drugs. There's something like the, the UN Office of Drugs and Crime have, have catalogued something like over a 1,000 different novel psychoactive substances now. We don't know what's in them. Uh, it's hard to understand what the composition is without drug testing or drug checking. And this is one of the things to your question about what are we missing here to ensure people get the support they need. We would think that and argue that drug checking would be a, a key initiative that would, be, would help in this space. So we know that there's been five coronial recommendations calling for drug checking, which helps identify the different compounds in illicit drugs and helps inform safer decision-making. And, of course, the other one, and, and potentially the, the most obvious, is the overdose prevention centre or you know, what, what most people would probably call uh, supervised or safe, safe injecting facility. Uh, and the data tell us, in Melbourne in particular, that people are dying in the CBD and that the CBD needs an overdose prevention centre. The other thing, the other point I would make is that most fatal overdoses and most of the data here is a result of polydrug use. So in the majority of cases, around 77% of fatal deaths involve multiple drugs. Now that includes heroin, it includes um, illicit substances, like you point out, the synthetic substances, but it's also including alcohol here. Mm. And alcohol's a significant contributor to overdose deaths when you put them together, so we're talking about um, depressant-type drugs and combining those drugs and presenting significant risks. 
Yeah. And the other thing I would... Sorry, go on. No, 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 you go, Scott. Just, just quickly, too, I think while we are thinking about illicit substances and focusing on, say, street-based use and overdoses uh, in the context of heroin use, we just can't assume that these data is exactly street-based drug use and pointing only to that. So, for example, out of the 549 overdoses, we know that 150 of those, or you know, approaching a third, are uh, folks over the age of 55. So it's not only young people who are at risk here. And there may be more education, for example, required around uh, alcohol and prescription medication, for example, where uh, an older person may also at the same time have um, compromised health, for example. Yeah, absolutely. I think remembering that, yeah, definitely it is poly drug use. And so often what we say in the language in like the alcohol and other drug space is that alcohol is not exempt from being a drug, even though it is widely accessible and really ingrained in our culture, um, that it is still a drug that people need to use harm reduction um, skills for, but also people need support for. And so often it gets left out of the conversation and I think what you've pointed out there is so important um, and totally I yeah, agree yeah absolutely yeah. and I think too just ask any ED physician on um, who works on a Friday or Saturday night or over the weekend about the impact of alcohol and they will tell you it far eclipses the impact of illicit drugs that are coming through the emergency departments. It's, uh, it's, it's a big impact and uh, as you say, it sometimes gets overlooked in the conversation, the uh, contributing the problems that alcohol uh, has, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, obviously, I don't want to solely focus on heroin-related fatal overdoses, but I do want to bring it back to it, only because there is the second CBD safe injecting room campaign, um, you know, with the release of, like, the Kenley report soon. Um, I, I just, I, I do want to focus on this, because what's interesting is the city of Melbourne, where there is no overdose prevention service, has almost twice the number of heroin-related fatal overdoses than that of the city of Yarra, where the North Richmond medically supervised injecting room is. And when you look at the data of the medically supervised injecting room, you see in 2018, the data for overdoses goes down. And I wonder what would have happened in 2018 that would have supported that. It is the medically supervised injecting room. Um, so what is the data telling us from like the city of Yarra, where there is a service, versus the city of Melbourne, where there is a desperate need for one? So the city of Yarra used to um, have the unenviable uh, record of having the highest number of fatal overdoses. Uh, that's now the city of Melbourne. And 75% of fatal overdoses in Melbourne are heroin-related, compared to currently 42% across Victoria. Um, and up to 2021, there was one heroin-related fatal overdose in Melbourne per month, and this has doubled now to two per month. So it's increasing and people are dying. We can see that. Now, the city of Yarra um, has the supervised injecting facility. We've seen their heroin-related overdoses go down. We would argue that the implementation of a supervised injecting facility in Melbourne is clear and that the need is urgent 
and uh, the, the state government should really get on with this job. Now, that you also point to uh, the Ken Lay report, and in May, June, I think, the Labor government received the report into the potential establishment of a second injecting room in the CBD, and this was, report was prepared by uh, the former police commissioner, Ken Lay. Uh, that sat with the current government, and they haven't released any part of it, uh, and so we don't really know what the findings of that report are, but we we would argue that it needs to be released. And in fact, in as I uh, as I was preparing for this interview this morning, I started to get a little bit cross about this. So I wrote to my local member last night. I sent my local uh, state member an email last night saying, "Why aren't you releasing this report? Let's have a look at what it says." Uh, we would think, and, and hopefully, it'll tell us that there is a strong argument, just like this data tells us, there's a strong argument for a second injecting facility, uh, this time in Melbourne CBD. But we need that report to be released so that we can actually have a look at it and see what the recommendations are. Absolutely. I think that's an amazing point that we can write and should write to our local representatives saying this is important. Please release the report. Um, and that's an action we can all take today after you finish listening to this interview and this show. Um, but, yeah, I think one important thing that I wanted to highlight just before we wrap up is... It's so important for, you know, medically supervised injecting rooms or overdose prevention centres, because that's what they are, overdose prevention centres. They can't be locked away in some, you know, random industrial um, place, (laughs) out of sight, out of mind, you know, fearful of whatever neighbourhood people think. (laughs) Um, But, like, you need the centres where there is actual need and it's why the medically supervised injecting room in Richmond works because it's right where there is need. Same thing with the City of Melbourne. We need it exactly where there is need. Stigma plays a role. It's an evidence-based health prevention service. It's so effective at reversing overdoses. There's not been a fatality inside an overdose prevention centre here in um, North Richmond Um, and I'm sure that would be similar across the world. Um, That's right. Yeah. But, yeah, is there anything else uh, you want to leave with the one minute we have left? Sure. Just just to your point around um, uh, really what I think you're pointing to is, is the sort of very basic principles of healthcare, which say that people uh, you know, with health needs should get the right care at the right place at the right time. That's a... That's you know, a, a no-brainer in healthcare and an overdose prevention service ticks all of those boxes. Right care, right place, right time. So... Amazing, Scott. Right care, right place, right time. And thanks so much for coming on the show today um, to to speak about this. It's an incredibly important issue, but thank you. Thanks, Inez. Nice to catch up again, and thanks for having me, and thanks for your interest in the topic. No worries. Thank you so much, Scott. Bye. And that was Scott Drummond, who spoke to us with so much passion, who is from the Victorian Alcohol and Drug Association, about the data that was released from the coroner's court in Victoria, where fatal overdoses have increased across the board, um, not just in the city of Melbourne, but across Victoria. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. 
This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. Okay, um, Everybody's Home is a national housing campaign that this week called for one in ten houses to be social housing over the next next decade as a measure to end homelessness in Australia and has recommended that 10% target in its submission on the ha- National Housing and Homelessness Plan. And to discuss this, we've joined by May Aziz, who's the spokesperson for Everybody's Home. Good morning, May. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Um, so tell us a bit about who Everybody's Home is. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, and also, um, do you think that people, organisations that work directly with people in crisis have enough input into federal government policy? Uh, if not, how can we improve that? So you tell us a bit about Everybody's Home and, and your feelings on um, um, organisations having input into federal government policy. Thanks. So Everybody's Home is a national campaign to end Australia's housing crisis and we're made up of hundreds of organisations from across the country, welfare organisations and housing and homeless organisations. Um, and we've also got uh, 42,000 average Australians who are, who are just signed up to the campaign. Um, and we're really about two things. The first is more social housing. Uh, more social housing is really the only way that we can make housing more affordable for everybody. And I can say a bit more about that later. Um, and the other thing is uh, tax reform um, so that housing is homes, not investment vehicles. I think um, to your second question there about whether the people who are on the front line get enough say um, get enough say in how we make our policy. I think the, almost anyone I think would tell you the answer is no. Um, and this homelessness plan is a really good example uh, of that. I think we might just end up with a plan that describes things that already happen um, and is really about how homelessness services are funded but not about how people actually become homeless. And the reason they become homeless is because they can't afford a place to live and this plan doesn't say very much about that. Okay, thanks, thanks for that. Um, so could tell us what, your rec- what the recommendations are because, yeah, we know that um, social public housing in Australia is, is at 4% and falling um, and you guys have identified... For, uh, the lack of affordable housing as one of the major contributors um, mm. to homelessness and a homelessness or housing crisis. Mm. So, what what are the what's everybody's home's recommendations? So, Australia, there was a time in Australia back when housing was broadly affordable, and back in that time, the government was building and supplying a lot of housing to people directly. Uh, so, between the Second World War right up until the mid eighties, the government was building a lot of housing. It used to build around thirty thousand homes a year, and at the highest point, about one in four homes that was being built in Australia was being built by the government. Today, wow. it's less than one percent, and so it's no wonder uh, that housing is really unaffordable when the government's got such a small market 
market share, there's really no way for them to drive affordability. We've been seeing um, a lot of commentary over the last few months about how all we need is more supply, uh, but that's really not going to be something, you know, no one really describes how that's going to happen, right? No. The idea is we just build more and they trickle down and become affordable somehow. But the truth is we've never had more homes per person than we have now. Um, the number of homes per person goes up at every single census, but it never gets cheaper. It, uh, it only gets more expensive. And the reason for that is because the government is stepping back and not supplying housing itself. So that's why we want that target of 10%. Thank you so much for highlighting that because I think there's a there's a real un, I think there's um I think when people talk about the housing crisis, we know that there's empty houses everywhere, and I think it really highlights the lack of what you've what you've what you've described is the lack of of um, publicly publicly produced accommodation or, or housing, and and so what are the other mechanisms that the federal government has at its disposals to to um, impact housing affordability? The other thing they can do is tax reform. So over the last uh, 30 years, we've had um, tax changes that have meant that the wrong people are becoming suppliers of housing. Um, so, you know, more than 30, 40 years ago, um, private landlords were mostly positively geared and now they're mostly negatively geared. So they're these like highly leveraged amateur landlords um, and that's who mostly supplies housing in Australia. It's a bit of a, a crazy system. Um, and what it means is that if you're in a bit of hardship or you need, um, you know, you need a break from, from paying rent for a few weeks or you need a payment plan or whatever it is, um, your landlord might not be, they're definitely not required to do it and they might not be in a position to do it, which is totally different to how we do any other essential service in Australia. Yeah. Um, you know, electricity, utilities, water, they can't just turn off your service. They have to enter into a plan with you if you um, are in hardship. If you don't pay for a while, it doesn't mean you get cut off. It's actually like single digits um, in Victoria, for example, of people getting cut off from their electricity because there are, you know, we recognise it's an essential service. Yeah. But here it's it's supplied by, by amateurs and not uh, by the government or by more professional landlords. So we say um, definancialise housing, take away um, some of these um, investment tax breaks and that'll bring down the cost of housing. Okay. Um, the Everybody's Home Media release also outlined that the free market simply won't be able to deliver affordable accommodation the Australia requires, uh, that renting has nev never been less affordable and mm -hmm. housing stress um, is the fastest growing cause of homelessness. It's all, it also indicated the federal government has the power to end homelessness. So ha mm. I guess you've, you've alluded to these, these things, but, um, yeah, so how do we get into this position? How do we, how do we get into a position where we have, you know, like four houses to each person, but there's, there's homelessness? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, you know, I, I go places sometimes where I talk to journalists, I give talks, and people have all these ideas about, you know, prefabricated houses and tiny homes. Yeah. And that's yeah, great, have, but yeah. the people aren't homeless because there aren't enough yeah. homes, right? Like, um, you know, so um, what we need to do is make it such that everyone can afford somewhere to live. That's yeah. why people are homeless. Um, you know, people love to overcomplicate it. Government loves to overcomplicate it. They love to pretend that people are 
homeless because they're, you know, they've got these complicated lives. Um, you know, the number of people who are homeless in Australia grows as housing unaffordability, you know, gets worse and worse. So the, the, the biggest and most important thing that we can do is bring down the cost of housing. And the best way to do that is for the government um, to start supplying more housing, um, as I mentioned earlier, and for them to um, stop housing from being this big investment vehicle, which just pushes up the cost of it. Yeah. Okay, so the Everybody's Home campaign has also identified that a secure home is the foundation of a good life and the lack of affordable housing makes this really difficult. So can you define, please define what affordable housing is and what and describe and describe or define what you mean by social housing because there's a lot of confusion as for what is community, what is affordable, what is public. Yeah. Um, so affordable means 30% um, of a person's income. That's that's a you know a fairly academic definition. It's a pretty internationally accepted one. Um, but 30% of a person's income. Um, so you know what that means is instead of going off and you know searching and try, I mean, good luck trying to find um, you know a place to live or a place to rent if you're on um, a middle income or even a pretty high income actually in Australia, <laughs> finding a place that's that's thirty percent of your your income. Um, I think most people are used to paying you know in Australia way way more than that. Um, but that's why again um, social housing is so important because it's it's not set at a fixed price. It's it's a percentage of people's um, income if they're if they're if they're waged, if they've got an income coming in, um, you know. So public public and community housing is what social housing is. It's that combination of the two. So it could be public housing provided by government, um, which is what it was in Australia right up until, as I said before, the 80s. Yeah. In the 90s was when community housing started to emerge because, you know, the government was stepping back and it was leaving a bit of a gap. Um, but that's really what we're talking about, non-market housing supplied either by the government um, or by a not-for-profit provider at 30% of people's income. Okay, thank you for that, mate. And also, just in, we're wrapping up, just as we're wrapping up, can you tell us how, how people can get behind everybody's home? campaign and just quick, quickly what are your feelings on the Victorian government's announcement that they're going to knock down the towers you know what are your feelings this is not the time to be knocking down public housing I mean one of the reasons that we're we're losing so much um, one of the reasons why we're getting so behind is because the federal government isn't funding um, public housing anymore and state governments are really rationing it. You know, it's it's now for just people at the absolute margins yeah. of society. Back, I, um, I was talking earlier about back when housing was affordable. Um, public housing, all sorts of people used to live in it. You know, construction workers, teachers, yeah. you know, waged workers uh, because there was enough of it. Um, and now what we're seeing is there's so little of it and knocking it down, um, you know, isn't useful. We should be protecting the public housing that we've got and building more or buying more. You know, the state government could also buy more um, if, it, if it needs more. Um, yeah, sorry, I think I missed your... your uh, and uh, also, oh, how can people... Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. How, how do you get involved? Yeah. Uh, visit everybody'shome.com uh, and um, sign our petition and we'll we'll get in touch with you. We've got um, a big community of, of renters and people who care about the housing crisis. Thank you so much for your time, May, and thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks. 
That was May Aziz, the spokesperson from the Everybody's Home uh, National Housing Campaign that this week called for one in ten houses to be social housing over the next decade as a measure to end homelessness in Australia and has recommended a 10% target in its submission on the National Housing and Homelessness Plan, which is expected to be released next year. And just before we wrap up today's show, um, I wanted to reiterate a statement from a group called Mums for Palestine, uh, which on Thursday, the 9th of November, was calling for the Australian government and all governments to call for an immediate ceasefire, to call on the Australian government to condemn Israeli war crimes, for the Australian government to cease weapons exports to Israel, to demand respect for international law, including the protection of civilians, hospitals, medical staff and schools, for an immediate and safe access of humanitarian aid into Gaza, including urgent fuel, food, medicine and clean water, an end to the evacuation orders on hospitals, the safe return of displaced people to their homes, and an end to the blockade on Gaza and the occupation of all Palestinian territories. So that's all we've got on for you today on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. One final thing, uh, it's Trans Awareness Week, so count yourselves aware. Go... Um, Go have a look at resources support the Incarcerated Trans and Gender Di- Diverse um, Community Fund uh, support Beyond Bricks and Bars and the awesome work that Whitgari and other critical social workers are doing um, to support trans folks inside. And we will catch you next week on Thursday Breakfast. To UCR Breakfast, we'd like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.